The gospel reading for this morning comes from Luke's gospel, beginning in the 24th chapter, at the 13th verse. And Luke wrote about this encounter. That same day, two of them were walking to the village Emmaus, about seven miles out of Jerusalem. They were deep in conversation, going over all these things that had happened. And in the middle of their talk and questions, Jesus came up and walked along with them. But they were not able to recognize who he was. He asked, What's this you're discussing so intently as you walk along? And they just stood there long-faced, like they'd lost their best friend. Then one of them, his name was Cleopas, said, Are you the only one in Jerusalem who hasn't heard what's happened during these last few days? He said, What has happened? They said, Well, the things that happened to Jesus the Nazarene. He was a man of God, a prophet, dynamic in work and word, blessed by both God and all of the people. Then our high priests and leaders betrayed him, got him sentenced to death, and crucified him. And we had our hopes up that he was the one, the one about to deliver Israel. And it is now the third day since it's happened. But now some of our women have completely confused us. Early this morning they were at the tomb and couldn't find his body, and they came back with the story that they'd seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. And some of our friends went off to the tomb to check and found it empty, just as the women said, but they didn't see Jesus. Then he said to them, so thick-headed, so slow-hearted, why can't you simply believe all that the prophets said? Don't you see that these things had to happen? That the Messiah had to suffer and only then enter into his glory? And then he started at the beginning with the books of Moses and went on through all the prophets, pointing out everything in the scriptures that referred to him. And they came to the edge of the village where they were headed. And he acted as if he were going on, but they pressed him, Oh, stay and have supper with us. It's nearly evening. The day is done. So he went in with them. And here's what happened. He sat down at the table with them. And taking the bread, he blessed and broke and gave it to them. And at that moment, open-eyed, wide-eyed, they recognized him. And then he disappeared. And back and forth they talked. Didn't we feel on fire as he conversed with us on the road? As he opened up the scriptures for us? And they didn't waste a minute. They were up and on their way back to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and their friends gathered together talking away. It's really happened. The master's been raised up. Simon saw him. Then the two went over everything that had happened on the road and how they recognized him when he broke the bread. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, Lord, we have been good newsed but how little we act like it. We can't talk about the good news and be the bad news. 
we would be true witnesses of faith, remembering the words of Jesus, to lose your life is to find it. How many of the lost need us to lose ourselves, that they might catch a glimpse of the living, breathing Christ in the midst of their personal pain? Help us good news others in Jesus' name. Open our ears, minds, and our hearts to your word for us this day. Amen. The story Stone Soup is an old folk tale, and it's told and retold with slightly different details in many different countries and cultures. In case you've forgotten, it is a fable that focuses on the creativity of some weary travelers who arrive at a small village with nothing, absolutely nothing. No food, no money, nothing. All they really have is a large cooking pot. And the travelers are met with suspicion and surliness, it seems, everywhere that they go. No doors are open to them. No invitations of hospitality are extended to them. Well, the travelers then build a fire in the middle of the commons of the village square. And they fill their cauldron, their big pot, with water and one large stone, and they place it over the fire. And they sit around the pot, rubbing their hands in expectation, talking about their anticipation of their great delicacy, stone soup. And the villagers grow curious, and one by one, they come to ask the travelers what they're doing. Most importantly, what it is that they are cooking that is exciting them so much. And the travelers respond to each villager who approaches that the stone soup that they are cooking is absolutely the most exquisite soup anyone could ever taste. But the best could be even better if they received just one more ingredient. So to one villager, they mention carrots. To another, they suggest potatoes. To a third, they imagine that a big beef bone would add so much more to the mixture. As more villagers approach and more ingredients are suggested, the cauldron of stone soup gradually takes on the identity of a thick, rich stew. A stew capable of feeding all of those who contributed and then some. And at the end of the story, all of the travelers and visitors and villagers sit together on the commons and enjoy an unexpected and hearty meal together. Now, I really don't think that stone soup is a story about how to get a free lunch. It is a story about the transforming power of hospitality. But in this case, it's reverse hospitality. Because you see, it's the tired travelers with empty hands who invite the first uncertain villager to join them. It is the strangers who offered the hospitality to the uncertain hosts. You know, I think all of us like being in a circumstance when we know something of importance that others do not. I think Luke uses this literary device as he relates the story 
of the road to Emmaus to us. Their eyes were kept from recognizing him. The evangelist is careful to make that point for us at the outset. You know, I think it serves to caution us against making too swift a judgment on this pair, who were just astounded that this stranger knew nothing of all of the things that had taken place in Jerusalem in the days before. But what do you suppose kept their eyes from recognizing him? Perhaps grief, fear, no doubt. A great crippling sense of a letdown. But just maybe there's more than that. Because I think if we're honest, there's a hint of the Lord's own doing in withholding instant recognition in his resurrection appearances. In all of the Gospels, no one knows him until he makes himself known. It's not as though people can come to the insight and awareness of what his resurrection means without his own empowering spirit. You see, before his death and resurrection, people could recognize Jesus. But afterward, no one knows him as the Christ, the Messiah, the risen Messiah, until he speaks or breaks bread or otherwise makes it possible for blind eyes to open. And I really think this truth is meant to instruct and perhaps even comfort us. Those who saw the risen Lord don't stand in a position of special advantage over us. All of us have the same need for God's Son to make himself known in our inmost hearts where faith begins. You see, we're not called to see Jesus as risen and then just go on living our lives as if nothing were changed. So maybe much more than seeing him is involved here. It is to new life and participation in a new creation that God calls us in his risen son. I think this story invites us to find ourselves with the two Emmaus disciples seeing ourselves in their circumstances. And if you think about it for a moment, that ought not to be such a difficult thing to do. Who of us has not stored up great hopes in their heart, but then come to a point where everything about those hopes just comes crashing down? It's inevitable in life, of course. But I think the most important point in the story is not about life in general, but about hopes that were attached to God and centered on our expectations of how God would act for us in life situations. So the disciples were caught up in the if-only syndrome. If only Jesus would have gone away from Jerusalem at the threatening hour of his betrayal and arrest. If only basic Roman justice could have prevailed in the face of the mob shouting for his blood. If only Judas would not have betrayed the master. If only Peter's defiance with the sword in the Garden of Gethsemane could have sparked an immediate riot and Jesus could have been saved at the last moment. 
If only the women would not have gone to the tomb and come back with the disturbing report that it was empty. If only I would have prayed more, believed more, done more, maybe my kids would still be active in the life of the church in some way. If only I could have been more sensible and realistic when falling in love and marrying the person who I was unable to change. And now we look at each other day after day after day. If only I could have known that those first pains in my upper back were not a muscle sprain, but a telltale sign of the cancer cells that now have invaded every organ in my body. If only I could have known then what I know now. We have endless ways of framing the if-only sentences of our lives. And it's not my intention to put them down and stand at some distance and say how stupid and vulnerable we all are. I have my own experiences of the if-only laments of my own life. We are all together at this point, even though the circumstances vary widely. All of these if-only thoughts, if left to dominate our minds and souls, keep Jesus Christ as a stranger. Behind them lies all, all one common denominator, and it's this. The false idea that God is helpless with our own folly and will do nothing in the face of our sin. Now the story tells us that the two disciples began the journey with heavy hearts. It's no subtle touch of resentment at the stranger walking with them who seems so blasted uninformed. But one of the points of the story is that the stranger doesn't want to remain a stranger. The heart of it is when the stranger starts to interpret the Old Testament and explain all of these things were spoken of by Moses and the prophets. He opens up the scriptures to them. He transforms their thinking. They had just concluded that Jesus' mission had failed. We still know Jesus as he makes himself known to us in the gospel. He is the living center of our holy book it speaks to us because he speaks to us through it. And then we come to know Christ Jesus as he comes to us through the breaking of bread. And he comes to us again and again and again in this wondrous way. Inviting us to bring to him all of our needs, everything within our souls that can make us grateful. And we all throw them into the community pot and the stew that we share is so much more powerful than anything we could imagine attempting on our own. It is ultimately the gift of reverse hospitality that we call a sacrament. For it's a means of grace, a proclaiming of the gospel that our sins are forgiven, and we are afforded new life through the gift of Jesus the Christ. And then ultimately, the Emmaus Road disciples become messengers of this risen Christ. 
He has made himself known to them. He makes himself known to us today through the word of mercy and the meal of grace. You know, we sometimes walk through long stretches of our lives when we seem to be on this side of the road of Emmaus. When the dominant force that moves us is the events of the past that turned out differently than we had hoped. But in all of our journey, our walk is always by faith. Our calling is to keep trusting, even when we can't seem to sense his presence in the way things are turning out at the moment, because our eyes are not kept blind permanently. As we live with him and with his people, we keep getting our eyes opened. We keep getting our eyes opened. Thanks be to God. Amen.